5,000 men divided into cohorts or battalions. Each of those battalions had usually about 100 men or so, but Cornelius was a centurion over a larger battalion, probably as many as 500 men in his battalion, some think. Evidence indicates that uh, he was there, that that band was larger because it was there to protect the uh, rulers who made their homes in Caesarea. His cohort was known as the Italian Band, and members of the Italian Band were all native Roman soldiers. They were not foreign mercenaries. It was a very distinguished cohort. There have been some coins found in ancient places that uh, commemorate this particular cohort. In addition to the soldiers assigned to wait on him, uh, Cornelius also had a number of household servants as well. Since Caesarea was the capital of uh, Palestine, the Roman capital of Palestine, his troops did provide security for the Roman procurators who made their homes there. Some of those whose names you might recognize would include Felix and Festus and Pontius Pilate. You know, it's interesting, for many years, there was no physical evidence of the existence of a Roman prefect. We've used the word prefect and procurator. There's also the name governor. All those three words are used interchangeably. But there was no physical evidence of the existence of a prefect by the name of Pontius Pilate for centuries. And skeptics of the Bible would criticize and say, oh, that guy never existed. He was just part of the biblical myth. Uh, the, the Bible's not true. Well, interestingly enough, in June of 1961, an archaeological team from Italy uh, was doing some work in the uh, Caesarea area and discovered a stone, a stone with an inscription that said, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea. Later on in 1969, a signet ring was discovered with an inscription indicating that it may have belonged to Pilate as well. So you see, the Bible is true, and its accuracy is demonstrated again and again and again. As a rule, the procurators governed Palestine from their official residence in Caesarea, but during Jewish festivals, they would temporarily transfer to Jerusalem in order to oversee crowd control uh, during festivals like Passover. That's why Pilate was in Jerusalem on the Passover when the Jews demanded the crucifixion of Christ. Kings of the Herod dynasty also frequented Caesarea, Herod the Great, of course, who did the great uh, reconstruction of the harbor in the city, was frequently a frequent uh, visitor there, as well as his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. The ancient city of Caesarea is thought to be the same as Hazor, mentioned in Joshua 11, also in um, Judges chapter 4. Uh, this city was a principal city of Canaan around 1500 B.C., it was captured by the Hasmoneans in 90 B.C. and known as Straton's Tower for centuries until it was rebuilt uh, by Herod the Great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Herod uh, built an elaborate palace with intricately designed mosaic floors and greatly enlarged the harbor. In fact, it was the largest harbor east of Greece on the Mediterranean Sea. Herod renamed the city then uh, Caesarea in honor of his friend Augustus Caesar. It was the principal seaport of Palestine for centuries after that. And of course, uh, not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, it was known as Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea Philippi is located about 100 miles to the northeast near the headed waters of the Jordan River. Of course, today Caesarea is just a tourist uh, site and uh, historical location. All of the biblical information that we have about Cornelius 
is in Luke in the uh, in uh, Luke's account rather in chapter ten of Acts. It's also reflected in Peter's report in chapter eleven to the church in Jerusalem. Cornelius was a pivotal figure in the development of the early church. The scripture describes him as a man of outstanding character, a man who worshipped the true God, and whose life was shaped by godly principles. He was generous with others and influential among the people. A thought that comes to mind about Cornelius is that he's the type of person that we'd all like to find when we go out to teach the gospel to others. He's one who feared God, who wanted to be as, as close to God as he could, uh, wanted to have a great desire to serve God. Certainly, it's always a joy to find someone like that to teach the gospel. But of course, the gospel is also the power of God to salvation in that it can change a life. It can uh, turn a, a misdirected life around and put one's feet on the path of righteousness. So the gospel is, of course, great, greatly powerful. But in addition to its power, it's also a treasure. It's that treasure hidden in a field. That pearl of great price, so diligently sought after and greatly desired by people. And it's people like that, that the Lord described in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. Those are the ones that we'd like to find. Verse 2 describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God and influenced his household to honor God. He gave generously to others, and he was a man of prayer. What an honor to be described by, on, by such terms on the pages of Scripture. Upon first meeting Cornelius, of course, we can see that he's a man that was a good role model. He honored God with his heart and with his material goods and with his spirit. Keep in mind that 99% of the world's population was not subject to the law of Moses, as were the Jews. The patriarchal law remained in effect for them until the establishment of the church. Of course, paganism and polytheism were widespread, the belief in many gods, Gods of the sun, moon, and stars, gods of the trees and plants and birds and fish, and gods of the seasons, and many others. The Roman Empire deified Jupiter and Mars and Diana and others as well. In 26 BC, when Octavian became emperor, he took the name Augustus and declared himself a god. The imperial cult provided that an emperor could be deified by a vote of the Senate, and that was an act called apotheosis. By the time Gaius Caligula became emperor in AD 37, it was assumed that deity came along with the title, not unlike some politicians today. <laughs> Caligula even went so far as to command that the temple in Jerusalem be converted to a shrine in his honor and that a statue be erected for him. And that uh, argument went on back and forth with negotiations and protests until his death in AD 47, and then it was heard about no more. Jews who refused to accept Christ as the Son of God continued to worship in the temple in Jerusalem and practice their traditions until it was destroyed in AD 70, thus putting a final end to the Jewish economy. You know, the fact that uh, Cornelius prayed to God is in itself notable. Even though they were officers in the Roman military, we know that a number of centurions appeared to be God-fearing men. Uh, many of them displayed good character traits, of course, as is necessary for any good leader. We find a number of examples in the New Testament. Uh, there was the centurion whose servant Jesus healed in uh, Luke 7, 2. It was also said that this particular centurion built a synagogue for the Jews in his community. There was the uh, centurion who, built, who, who confessed Christ on the cross in Matthew 27, 54. 
There were those who rescued Paul from the mob in Acts 21. The one who spoke to the tribune on Paul's behalf in Acts 22. There was the one who brought Paul's nephew to the captain when he learned that a group of Jews had hatched a plot to kill Paul. Then the centurion who escorted Paul to Caesarea and a centurion named Julius, commander of the Augustan regiment, who saved Paul's life on the voyage to Rome. And this one, Cornelius, the first Gentile convert to the Lord's church. Oh, there had been other Gentiles who became Christians, but they first became proselyte Jews. There were some there on Pentecost who were among the very first to obey the gospel. But Cornelius was the first Gentile who became a Christian without going through the ritual process of becoming a proselyte Jew. On a certain day at three o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius was praying, as was his habit. Now, it happens that the ninth hour, three o'clock, was the traditional time that Jews observed afternoon prayer. But this doesn't in any way imply that Cornelius was a proselyte Jew. He was no doubt aware that the local Jews observed that as a time of prayer and no doubt observed, started praying at that particular time of day as a matter of convenience. But there was no evidence at all that he had converted to Judaism. In fact, quite the contrary is true. The scripture identifies him as a Gentile, as of another nation. And Paul, excuse me, Peter referred to him as uncircumcised. The scripture tells us that on this day, Cornelius was praying and he had a vision and clearly saw an angel of God. Later, he would tell Peter, quote, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Furthermore, the angel called him by name. Yes, God does know us by name. And I'm glad to know that because only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter heaven, Revelation 21, 27. The text says that when Cornelius saw the angel, he was afraid. Do you think? <laughs> I certainly would be. Different words are used in various translations to describe his feelings at that time. Alarmed, um, terrored, affrighted, much afraid. Probably similar to the way that Saul must have felt on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. Cornelius' response is universally translated, what is it, Lord? Cornelius exhibited an attitude like that of young Samuel of old when the Lord called to him and he answered, what is it, Lord? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, 1 Samuel 3.10. The angel told Cornelius that his prayers and his generosity had ascended as a memorial before God. Paul described the gifts that he had received from the church at Philippi as a sweet-smelling aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Our prayers are likened to the incense that burned in the temple, a sweet-smelling aroma rising before God. The angel gave Cornelius some specific instruction as to what he was to do. He said, Now send men to Joppa, and send for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Acts 10, verses 5 through 6. Notice the urgency and the detail, the specificity, the exact instruction that was given. It left no chance of confusion or misunderstanding. It was not a suggestion, not something that could be delayed or put off. The message began with a significant word, now. Now, send men to Joppa. The same word, of course, that was used by Ananias in Acts 22.16 when he said to Saul, And now, what are you waiting for? 
Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Consider the role of divine providence, if you will. Peter was staying at the house of a tanner who lived by the sea. The tanning of leather required an abundant supply of water, and the seaside was a natural location for such a business, and that would make it easy to find. The apostle Peter was a guest in Simon's home. Cornelius was instructed to send for Peter, a man who would tell him what he must do. Identical language with which the Lord spoke to Saul on the road to Damascus when he said, go into the city, and there you'll be told what you must do. Acts 9, verse 6. Consider, if you will, the imperative nature of the Lord's commands. He told Saul that in Damascus he would be told what he must do. On this occasion, the angel told Cornelius that Peter would tell him what he must do. Many commentators and some translators omit or diminish the significance of the word must. Instead of must, some say ought to or should or what is behooved. But must is a significant word. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words defines it thus. Must means of necessity as to what is required that something may be brought about. Based on the context and other related passages, it's clear then that in both instances, both in the case of Saul and now Cornelius, that they were about to be informed of action that they must take in order to receive remission of their sins and attain salvation. <clears throat> it's important to note that the gospel message is always delivered by human agents, never revealed directly by an angel, not by the Holy Spirit, not even by the Lord himself. You know, it was an angel that sent Philip to meet the Ethiopian's chariot. That angel could just as easily have delivered the information that the eunuch needed directly, but he didn't. Certainly, if he had wanted to, the Lord could have saved Saul on the road to Damascus. Some think he did, but he did not. Or he could have told him what to do to be saved, but he didn't. The angel of God could have given Cornelius direct instructions to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of his sins and confess his faith and be baptized for the remission of sins, but he didn't. Jesus sent his disciples to preach the gospel to all creation, Mark 16, 15. Paul wrote, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also for the Greek or Gentile. Romans 1.16 The church at Corinth received a letter from Paul in which he spoke of the gospel in this manner. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, 2 Corinthians 4.7 referring to the gospel, of course, as the treasure. The delivery of the gospel message was an assignment that was given to men by Christ, and that has never changed. You know, it's interesting to observe how people respond in obeying God's commands when they come to a knowledge of the truth. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew, Matthew 4.20 says that they immediately left their nets and followed him. The believers on Pentecost, the Philippian jailer, the Ethiopian eunuch, all were baptized immediately upon coming to an understanding of the gospel. They understood the imperative nature of God's commands. <clears throat> the angel told Cornelius to send men to Joppa and asked Peter to come to Caesarea so that he could learn what he must do. 
Joppa was located a little over 30 miles down the Mediterranean coast, a trip that would take 10 to 12 hours each way. This was an important mission. It was so important that Cornelius sent two of his most trusted servants along with a soldier whom he also trusted. In fact, the scripture calls the soldier a devout man. No doubt these people had all been influenced by the righteous life exhibited by their leader. Cornelius had such trust and confidence in his servants that he gave them verbal instructions instead of writing a letter for them to carry. Also note that the battalion commander sent a soldier along on this personal mission. It was that important to him. The purpose in sending the soldier may have been to assure safe passage for the, for the people on the journey, both the messengers who were traveling to Joppa and, of course, for Peter on the return trip. That it's notable that uh, this commander had such prerogative in order to do that. It's evident that they left immediately, sometime after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, arriving at Joppa around noon the following day. So it seems like they may have spent the night on the road, perhaps halfway around Apollonia, somewhere like that. The next day, as it was getting on toward noon, the three men from Caesarea were arriving on the outskirts of town. They began making their way along the waterfront, looking for that tannery. And not far away, at the home of Simon's tannery, Peter became hungry. But lunch wasn't ready yet. <clears throat> so Peter climbed up the steps to the rooftop and began to pray. While he was praying, Peter fell into a trance, a state in which he saw a vision. And he saw the sky open up, the scripture says, and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by the four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Acts 10, verses 11 through 14. God used this imagery to illustrate his message to Peter. This was not about bacon and eggs or ham sandwiches. It had a much deeper meaning than that. It happened three times. And as Peter was contemplating the meaning of it, the men from Caesarea arrived at the gate. The Bible says, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 10. <clears throat> you know, humanity has a tendency to forget that our Heavenly Father sees and knows all about our lives. He knows our going out and our coming in, according to Psalms 121 verse 8. Jesus said that not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without the Father knowing it. And you are more, much more valuable than many sparrows, he said, in Matthew 29, verse 30 and 31. Here we see an example of God's providence in the arrival of the three men at that precise moment. The lesson in the vision was pivotal for Peter and for all the ages, although in times past God had required that the Hebrews were not to have any association with people of other nations, he's now making it clear that a change has occurred. Later, Peter said to the people assembled at the home of Cornelius, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So, Peter came down from the rooftop. <clears throat> he met the men who had come and told them that he was the man whom they were seeking, and he asked their reason for coming. They replied by telling Peter that 
Cornelius had sent them. They didn't begin by asserting the authority and the power of their military leader because he was a Roman centurion. Remember, Palestine was under Roman rule, and a Roman soldier could make any demand of a Jew which must be obeyed. Remember Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go two? That's what this was about, because Roman soldiers frequently would do that. These men described Cornelius as a just man, righteous, good, upright, and God-fearing. They said he has a good reputation and is well spoken of by all the Jews. They wanted to make certain that Peter understood that the man who had asked them to come had earned the respect of all the Jews in his community. And then they delivered the clincher. They told Peter that Cornelius was divinely instructed by a holy angel to send for him and ask him to come. You know, Cornelius could have sent a message to Peter commanding him that he come. Or he could have, um, the soldier could have commanded that Peter go with him. But the imperative order came from a much higher place in the chain of command, from the Lord himself. After they told Peter their purpose in coming, he invited them in. He shared his lunch with them and suggested that they stay the night and all get started for Caesarea the next morning. Remember, these are Gentiles. Remember, Peter is still living, is, is still adjusting to the message he received from this vision. But he has invited, the, invited these Gentiles to come into his place of residence, shared his lunch with them, and invited them to spend the night under the same roof. Peter's message, Peter received the message of the vision. The Bible goes silent here for the remainder of the day and for that night until they arrive in Caesarea the next afternoon. What do you suppose Peter did that night? I feel pretty sure that he prayed, don't you? Prayed for guidance, for God's protection, and prayed that God's will be done. But I also imagine that he did not have a lot of packing to do, although he did have one other very important task to perform. Joppa is one of the oldest seaport cities in the world. That's where King Hiram of Lebanon landed cedar logs for construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's where Jonah took a ship in his attempt to avoid obeying God's command to go preach in Nineveh. It's mentioned several times in the Old Testament. By AD 41, however, there was an active congregation of the Lord's church there. We know that from the, fact of, from the account of Dorcas being raised from the dead in Acts 9, 36. The church grew even more after she had been raised from the dead. Peter says that the, in the scripture that many believed on the Lord. Peter no doubt called some of the brothers from that congregation together to tell them about the visitors that had just arrived and about his intent to go with them the next morning. Six of them agreed to go with him. And this was a good thing, both to help assure Peter's safety and maybe to help teach should the opportunity arise but most importantly, to be witnesses as to what was about to happen. After all, Peter was about to break with long-established Jewish law and tradition, irrespective of the fact that Jewish law no longer was in effect and that Christians were not subject to it. Still, Peter could potentially face a major backlash from Jewish Christians over what he was about to do. I'm sure that Peter appreciated that having the company of fellow Christians on this mission. It's always a very good feeling when going into a stranger's home to teach the Bible to have a companion for moral support. 
And we should never hesitate to go when there's an opportunity. They arrived at Caesarea probably around 4 or 5 o'clock the next afternoon. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Verse 24. When doing mission work, it's always a thrill to arrive at a home for an appointment for Bible study and find a house full of people who've been invited to come and listen. Cornelius greeted Peter with his first inclination. His first inclination was to bow down to him. Of course, Peter lifted him up immediately and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. Verse 26. Note that Peter did not else about before me, for I am Pope. You may call me Holy Father. No. No such heresy appears anywhere on the pages of Holy Writ. The two of them probably talked briefly in the courtyard before entering the house where people were gathered. And when they went in, Peter looked around the room, and he saw all the people who were there. He may have been reminded of Jesus' words in John 4.35 when he said, Lift up your eyes and look to the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. Of course, we can only speculate as to how many people may have been there. The text mentions relatives, plural, that's at least two. It mentions friends, plural, that's at least two more. And then there were the three who went to get Peter. And then there was Peter and Cornelius. So we're up to about 14 people already. And the scripture says that there were many more people there. There were many people there. So I'm sure there was quite a large crowd. No doubt about it. I remember going into a house in Costa Rica for what I was told would be a Bible study. Uh, with the family. When my translator and I arrived, we could see that the front porch was full of people. I figured that it was a hot day. They planned on having us just talk on the porch. But then they invited us inside for refreshments. The living room was full of people. An adjoining bedroom was full of people. And the kitchen and the back porch. There were people everywhere. They had invited all of their relatives, cousins, next door neighbor, Aunt Isabella and her cousins, and all of their in-laws and outlaws, a goat, and five of their dogs. It was quite a crowd of people. We quickly called two other groups to come and help us and talk there. It was spent quite a long time. So that, by that experience, I can tell you that Peter was glad to have those six people who came with him from Joppa. Peter's opening remarks in verse 28 revealed at least three purposes. He wanted the people to know that his presence there was an exceptional event. He also may have wanted to acknowledge the sensibilities of the Jewish brothers who came from Joppa. And most important was the fact he wanted everyone to know that his presence was divinely sanctioned by the one and only true and living God. Next, verse 29, the scripture says, quotes Paul is saying, Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Inasmuch as he was there because he was instructed by the angel of God to go, there could be no room for criticism from any quarter. Notice that he didn't delay or equivocate. He didn't start to second guess. He came without objection as soon as he was sent for. Now that all of the pleasantries and disclaimers were out of the way, Peter gets to the point. And no doubt turning to Cornelius, he asked, Why did you send for me? Cornelius then recounted his vision to Peter. And he said to him, so I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded by God. Cornelius's attitude was one of humility, gratitude, and a desire to hear 
God's messenger tell of the things that angels and prophets desired to know. Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 12. Jesus also talked about the fact that angels and prophets desired to look into these things. Cornelius acknowledged that they were assembled before God, recognizing that God observes human activity. He stated that their purpose in coming together was to hear all that God had commanded. Words by which he and his household would be saved, Acts 11.14. They were not looking for a watered-down sermon or an a la carte menu of religion or a partial knowledge of God's plan. They wanted to know all that God intended for them to do. When Jesus instructed the apostles to go and preach the gospel, he told them, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, Matthew 28, 20. Paul told the Ephesian elders, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27. Cornelius and his family and friends were ready to hear and obey. Now, after giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, God said to Moses, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that I be well with them and their children forever. Deuteronomy 5.29 Then Peter opened his mouth and began to speak. It's interesting. On a number of occasions we find this term whenever the truth of the gospel is about to be spoken. Jesus opened his mouth. Peter opened his mouth. Paul opened his mouth. Knowing that we might expect the same thing when we open the scriptures and look into the perfect law of liberty from there to learn what God intends for us to do. God shows no partiality. Cornelius was to understand that even though God's message of salvation was by, came by way of the Jews, it was and is equally applicable to all men of every race and every nation. But just imagine hearing an oral presentation of the accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus by Peter. Peter! who had been with Jesus and was an eyewitness of all these events. That assembled crowd certainly must have been thrilled to hear Peter tell of the things that he had seen. He told them about Jesus' own death on the cross, about his raising others from the dead and healing the sick, and restoring sight to the blind. And he told them about seeing Jesus' ascension after his resurrection. As a battalion commander in the Roman legions, Cornelius must surely have seen some amazing things in his experiences. But nothing could compare with the things that Peter had seen with the Lord. Whatever his expectations might have been while he was awaiting Peter's arrival from Joppa, we may be certain that Cornelius was not disappointed. And then, while Peter was speaking, suddenly another truly amazing event occurred. The Holy Spirit fell on all those who were hearing the word for the first time. The scripture doesn't give much detail. It doesn't say if there were divided tongues of fire or the sound of a fiercely rushing wind like occurred in Jerusalem on Pentecost. It does describe the result, though, and that was that people were able to speak and understand different languages, and they were praising God. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on them had deep and meaningful spiritual significance. But there was also a practical side to it. Just like there was on Pentecost, Cornelius and his family members, as well as the Roman soldiers, no doubt spoke Latin as their native language. 
I'm confident that Cornelius could also speak and understand the Aramaic that, that Peter spoke, but most of the others, the Roman soldiers particularly, most likely could not. But now they were able to understand Peter's preaching without an interpreter. Recall the event on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The scripture says, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And now, in Caesarea Maritima, a Roman family and their military staff were able to hear the gospel of Christ in their native language. The Jewish Christians who came from Joppa recognized this for what it was. The scripture says that they were astonished because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Peter's report of these things to the church in Jerusalem is seen in Acts 11. When he said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then he said, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This did not, this is important, get your pen and paper out and write this one down. This did not imply in any way that those people had been saved miraculously. But rather, it signaled that the Gentile world should hear the gospel of Christ. And I'm so glad because you know what? I'm a Gentile, and so are you. So this, this event is even more significant than we really ever stop to realize. This was the opening of the door for the spreading of the gospel to all the population of the world, no longer confined just to those of Jewish descent. But there's a difference in the miraculous powers that were bestowed by the Holy Spirit on these people on that occasion and the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us as Christians once we've been baptized. I think that Peter may have been just as surprised as those Gentiles were. But the point was made that uh, the gospel is indeed for all. Peter said, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we. Luke's narrative sums up the remainder of Peter's sermon, closing with the commandment that they be baptized in the name of the Lord. And Cornelius, a Roman centurion, became the first Gentile Christian. His reputation as a God-fearing and generous man was no doubt further enhanced. And I'm sure he continued to influence the lives of people wherever he went. The church in Caesarea became an important center for Christianity, with such notable men as Paul and Barnabas and Philip and other workers in the kingdom traveling through the city's port. In Acts chapter 21, we find Philip the evangelist living in Caesarea. Certainly on the honor roll of people who were influential in the founding and growth of the early church, the name Cornelius will be found. Luke wrote this historical account by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God's providence has preserved it for us through the ages that we may learn from it. This is important that we understand the significance of this account of the first Gentile converts. And that is that Christ died for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This account of the first Gentile Christian is especially meaningful for us today. The same terms apply equally for them, for us as it did for them. And that is that the gospel of Christ is for all. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. All who would partake of that water must meet the same terms and conditions that Cornelius and his household did. The fact that Cornelius had faith is certainly evident by his actions. But he needed to hear the gospel and once heard it to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and be willing to confess that faith before others. One must be willing to repent of past sins and then be immersed in water for the remission of sins. You know, as Christians, we have the very same privilege that Cornelius and his household did. Even after becoming a Christian, when we sin, and we all do, we have the wonderful privilege of knowing that the blood of Christ continues to flow to provide us with forgiveness and salvation when we confess our sins to him and ask his pardon. The same blood that took away their sins takes away ours and can take away yours right now. If you'd like to come and become a Christian or be restored to faithfulness, now's a great time as we stand together and sing. While we do His good will, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet, or we'll walk by His side in the way. What He says we will do, where he sins we will go, never fear, only trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Please go ahead and be seated, please. We're happy tonight.